So welcome back. Welcome those of you who are streaming online. Hope you enjoyed your cookies. Does anybody actually eat the whole cookie? I don't know, but they're very large. living in interesting times. Maybe it always seems like we're living in interesting times, although it does seem like it keeps getting more interesting. I just came back from England, where I'm from, and my family lives, and that's very interesting times. I was just on the East Coast, and that's very interesting times. And our practice, Dharma practice, Dharma teaching, these wisdom teachings of awareness, wisdom, compassion, the, you know, one of the main orientations is how we meet all of that, how we meet the mess of life, the beauty, the beauty of life, the craziness of life, the mystery of life, the challenge of life, and how to do that open-heartedly, how to do that with some, hopefully some wisdom, some awareness, some kindness, and how do we meet this interesting time called me, called myself, and how do we meet this massive life called people, called species and the earth. And we're living in this very strange time in that we're we're hearing about and seeing firsthand um, the, you know, upheaval, social upheaval, um, climate disruption, and tremendous uh, changes in weather and temperatures and just yesterday up on a ridge walking because I do a lot here and I saw two forest fires in the East Bay and I thought oh these are the times we're living in forest fires are prevalent and we had a forest fire here 15 acres up the hill we're very lucky the wind wasn't blowing downhill otherwise we might not be here in this room So, yeah, so how do we meet these changing conditions? Tribalism, authoritarianism, ecological disruption. What, what comes up for you when I even bring those topics up? Not easy to turn towards what's true, what's real. So, as many of you know, most of my life is, at this point, devoted to my nature work, to being out in nature, to teaching about contemplative practice in nature, to raising awareness of our interconnection with this earth and beings and species within it. And to also bear witness to what's happening. And what's happening is painful to witness. That's that's one of the challenges of this time is if we have awareness, 
and we're even moderately tapped in to what's happening, we know there's a there's a deep um, ecological crisis. That that is some somewhat unprecedented, and um, and I find myself talking about this topic more and. Forgive me if you've heard me speak about this topic before, um, but it's a bit like when you come here for Dharma teachings, you get Dharma teachings every week. <laughs> you go, oh, we heard the Dharma last week. Has it not got anything new to speak about? You know, no, we hear we hear similar teachings, mostly about how we meet and relate to life with with. You know, with presence, with skillfulness. So I spent time in the English countryside because that's where my parents live and it's something very beautiful to be in the very quaint, uh, charming, pastoral English countryside. And, And it's beautiful. And I'm also aware of the changing nature of that landscape. The, the bird song is very different. The, the English sort of cherish to some degree the, the richness of bird song that I don't find certainly on the West Coast here. And it's very beautiful being serenaded. Um, I have a friend who leads people to go listen to the nightingale sing in the woods, and the nightingales only sing at night for a few weeks a year. And uh, he takes in groups of musicians and they serenade with the nightingales it's very beautiful but uh, of course they're becoming harder and harder to find Britain's lost 50 million birds in the last similar kind of five decades so the, the, the bird song is very different it's much less full than it used to be it's very sad the loss because of just, you know, mostly agriculture and loss of habitat and, and whatnot. And so what I notice is everywhere I go, if, if one has eyes and ears uh, to see, that we see this change everywhere. Dryness, heat waves, floods. I just had a person on my retreat from Houston, and they said they've had four, five hundred year floods in five years. Used to only come once every five hundred years, and they've had four in a five-year span. And now the I'm not sure which authority decided to stop using the five hundred-year flood phrase because that was distressing to people since it was happening every year. So they now just call it a big flood. So, um, so I want to talk about. I was just reflecting about um, different ways to to meet the the times we're in, the ecological times. Because um, I think, uh, so I was just spending time uh, with a friend of mine in England, who's a similar to me, been a Dharma teacher for the last twenty twenty plus years, and he's now devoting most of his time to. Uh, working with Extinction Rebellion and uh, working and you know, dealing with the climate crisis. In fact, he probably got arrested again today. He's been arrested four times in the last year, mostly trying to close down uh, London to get people's attention, which Extinction Rebellion has done an amazing job of galvanizing interest and support in, in Britain. And so... Um, so I find myself uh, speaking about this more, and, and so that. Um, and he said, "You know, I've been teaching and practicing the Dharma for a long time, as I have, and this feels uh, like a different flavor of my Dharma service, or it's a it's another facet of our Dharma practice that that was wasn't really sort of." much in my you know wasn't I wasn't present to that when I first started practicing 35 years ago and so 
just curious. So for how many of you is your meeting what's happening in the ecological crisis, climate crisis? How many of you that sort of feels like it's part of your practice, like you have to work with it with your mind, with your heart, with your grief, with your sorrow, with your anger, with your... Just raise your hand. Just how many people for you is this an alive part of your practice? Okay, so a good half of you. So, you know, of course there are many pressing things in life. Climate and the ecological crisis is one of many. I have friends who work on the immigration crisis and other things that are going on. Um, So, but of course this one for me seems, partly because of my work is all out in nature, but also because if this, if we don't confront this swiftly and skillfully, then all the other crises will be subsumed. So, um, so I was reflecting about um, different ways to meet this, and I, and, I, and I was so this talk is around what I call the seven R's, the seven responses, or the seven ways of meeting what's happening to respond to the to the ecological crisis. And the first one, uh, the first R is to reacquaint ourselves with the beauty of the earth. So um, most of my work, as I said, is taking people outdoors. And my mission is to have people fall in love, fall head over heels in love with, with nature, with whatever it is that they're with, rocks, trees, grasses, butterflies, mud, Skies, clouds, forests, silence, crickets. And what happens when we fall in love is we want to protect, we want to take care, we want to steward, we want to defend, we want to fight for, we want to save. So um, so I think it's important for all of us you know, it's very easy to be overwhelmed and depressed by data and the news and, and the inactivity in Washington or the anti-ecological activity that's happening in this administration. And um, it's important that we remember and taste and feel and sense the beauty of this amazing planet. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live on a space station in Mars like it sounds exotic, but sounds pretty dry and dusty to me. There's more microorganisms in one handful of soil than all the micro- microorganisms on Mars. This is a pretty cool planet. and It's the only one we've got. And who knows where the next one is that's habitable. And so it's important in these times of stress and busyness and digital obsession, screen time addiction, that we actually go outside. And I just came, I just came across this beautiful teaching from the Buddha. And I, I, I've had this quote for a long time, but I didn't have the whole quote and it never made sense to me. He said, someone asked him, why do you go to the woods to meditate? And he said, I go to the forest to meditate because it's a pleasant binding here and a ple- pleasant abiding here and now and be out of compassion for future generations. And that was the quote I had. And, I, and I, I, the first part made sense, pleasant abiding, of course, you go to the forest, meditate, it's lovely, it's quiet, it's peaceful. But, uh, but out of compassion, why would going to the forest be a compassionate thing for future generations. And then I finally came across the, the, the full quote, which was, I, out of compassion for future gener- generations, so they would follow my example. So they would follow my example, as in they would take themselves to the woods and to the forests. Why? Because nature is a profound place to meditate, profound place to be, period. Profound place to feel stillness and silence and interconnection and beauty and awe and wonder and mystery, which we generally don't feel so much watching Netflix. We might get entertained, it might be interesting, 
but we don't touch into a deeper quality of presence or being or wisdom. <clears throat> Anybody see the sunset yes last night? It was magnificent. I was walking up on the headland so I could see the moonrise, the sunset, the red arrows or the blue angels or whatever they're called flying around. And um, blue angels, is that what they're called? It's a weird name. Anyhow, um, and it was just breathtaking. It was like walking into a Turner painting. To just notice what happens when we see that, or the sunrise this morning, equally spectacular. And it's very easy to forget how amazing this this world is, how beautiful, how exotic, how stunning, how diverse, how mysterious. And I had um, on a retreat, the favorite meditation I teach on these nature retreats, is lying down meditation. People always love that one. Permission to just finally give it up, surrender. And then to watch, to just watch the clouds and the trees sway and flow. So when you go outside tonight, check out the moon, which I think could be rising. Maybe it's not risen yet. The half moon should be risen. So reacquainting ourselves with the beauty of the earth. The second is to realize what's at risk, what's, what, what we're losing. So when we spend time outdoors, when we appreciate the incredible beauty and diversity that we live in, that's free, that's available, that's accessible for most people, we also re- realize that that is not permanent. The Buddha said nothing's permanent. No species, no forests, no weather systems. And we're living in these very, very transient times. So we're at risk of losing a million species if we don't change our ways very drastically in the next few decades. That's a lot of species. Wildlife in England's down 70%, 60% since 1970. And in England, a, so I'd say a fairly sort of, you know, genteel, land-loving culture. It's not like full of nature haters. There's <laughs> generally people who appreciate beauty of nature and the landscape, and there's a long history of that in England. And yet, the way that we're living as an industrial, agricultural, consumer society does not sustain the life that's around us. So in Dharma practice, we cultivate mindfulness and we cultivate wisdom. Satipanya, it's called. It means the, 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 aware, the wisdom, the, the knowing that comes from awareness. Right? So, and this is not easy to stay educated, to stay with our eyes and ears open because it's painful. But it's important and, and one of the reasons why Dharma practice and why there's so many teachings and teachers now drawing on the depths of Buddhist practice in relationship to the climate crisis is because the, our Dharma training, our practice, is about meeting the truth, about meeting reality, about meeting what's here. Whether we like it or not, want it or not, have preferences for something else or not. And we know we're also living in a culture that isn't meeting the truth and isn't speaking the truth and isn't broadcasting the truth and isn't admitting the hard truth and therefore isn't doing much about the truth. So this is where our practice serves us is meeting the truth of experience. And we all know how hard that is, how hard it is to meet ourselves. Right? It's hard to meet our own stuff, whatever it is. Never mind something as immense as, say, the climate crisis. 
So the third thing that needs to happen, therefore, we fall in love with the earth, we, we pay attention, we, we recognize what's happening. And the, f- the third thing we need to do is uh, uh, open up our heart to compassion, to love. So when we cultivate awareness, we don't practice awareness in isolation, but we do it with a sense of warmth or kindness or care or love or friendliness. This is a poem from Mary Oliver, one of Nietzsche's poet laureates. She says, Here is a story to break your heart. Are you willing This winter the loons came to our harbor and died one by one of nothing we could see. A friend told me of one on the shore that lifted its head and opened the elegant beak and cried out in the long, sweet savoring of its life, which if you've ever heard it, you know is a sacred thing, and for which if you've not heard it, you had better hurry to where they still sing. And believe me, tell no one just where that is. The next morning this loon, speckled and iridescent with a plan to fly home to some hidden lake, was dead on the shore. I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean that that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. So this is not easy, to have our heart broken open, to change, to loss pain to seeing that which we love, that which we cherish, that which we depend on is hurting, is being desecrated, is being poisoned, is being harmed unnecessarily. So it's essential that we um, learn to meet that with compassion, partly because when our hearts engage we can hold difficulty with greater capacity. And when we can meet what's here in ourselves and another person in the world with love, we've got more capacity. We can function. We can respond better. And of course, the easiest thing to, that happens when we, when we you know, and I hear about the latest loss or destruction or something or some oil development somewhere or drilling or fracking or some species under threat, the, the, often the first response is to go numb, to shut down, because it's too painful. We don't want to hear it, we feel rage, but we also just want to just deny it, because it's hard. And we spend, we know, it's a lot of time numb. And there's a lot of things to be aware of in this world, hard to stay open. From Joanna Macy, she says, Of all the dangers we face from climate chaos to nuclear war, none is so great as the deadening of our response. None is so great as the deadening of our response. Which means we have to be quite mindful about what we let in, about what we listen to, about what we read, how what what media we take in, because it's very easy for that to create overwhelm. As soon as we get overwhelmed, we shut down. And so we have to be really discerning. So we have to feel. So what stops the numbness is actually to let us let ourselves feel. Feel the grief, feel the tenderness, feel the pain, feel the loss. And that feeling allows that numbness to thaw out a little bit. The, ten, the tears can kind of thaw the, 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 the frozenness. So just to reflect for yourselves, like how willing or how, how open are you to let yourself feel whatever f- comes up in relationship to whether it's climate crisis or whatever crisis that you're facing. How, how engaged is the heart? But once we allow that thought to happen, there's more, there's more energy, there's more, there's more movement possible. I think of that story of the two people walking along the beach and it's been a big storm. Like I, I see this a lot in, when I'm down in Baja and sometimes storms bring up huge waves of, it could be sand, at times it's starfish, at times it's 
all kinds of things. And these two people are walking along the beach, and um, and um, there's a whole thousands and thousands of starfish lining the beach. And one of them's they're just chatting as they walk down the beach, and one of them's picking up starfish every now and then, throws one back in. And his friend says, "Why are you doing that? There's thousands of you. You're never going to be able to throw them all back." Well, what's the point? Why does it matter? And, the guy, and his friend lifts one up. He says, it matters to this one. It matters to that one. So when we engage, when we, get, when, we, when we allow ourselves to feel, there's a little more responsiveness. This is a quote from Adrian Rich. He said, there must be those among, there must be those among whom we can sit down and weep and still be counted as warriors whom we can sit down and weep with and still be counted as warriors. So understanding that weeping, grief, sadness, loss is not weakness, it's actually a healthy response. The collective grief or sadness or rage or rising up that's starting to happen is the earth, we're part of the earth, we're part of the earth's immune system and the immune system is moving to protect itself. So the fourth thing that we uh, can do is reconnect with others. Just like we do here, we come together to feel a sense of connection, to feel a sense of warmth, feel a sense of solidarity, feel a sense of others, other people like me. I don't feel so alone or so isolated. And what's essential around the climate crisis, because it's so immense, because it's so overwhelming, because the data is so... Uh, it's impossible for one person to hold. It helps to hold it together. It helps not to feel so alone. It helps important to find groups of like-minded people that also share your perspective. Or join a group like 350.org or Extinction Rebellion or the many, many Declare Climate Emergency or One Earth Sangha or Buddhist Peace Fellowship or many, many organizations that you can find people doing work that help feel less in that sense of isolation or alienation. I've shared this story before when I remember talking to Joanna Macy and it was actually some years ago and I was feeling quite despairing about the state of the world and, and where we were heading ecologically and I said, how do you not, how do you not give up in despair? And she said, because I work with others, I connect with others, and I get engaged. So when you work with others, when you engage, engagement and action is an antidote to anxiety. And she said, it doesn't matter if you fail, it doesn't matter if you don't succeed, but what's important is you engage, you act, and in that movement it transforms that sense of paralysis or isolation. So I came across... Um, in, in working with grief, I came across some interesting uh, work done by the what's called the Good Grief Network, two uh, 30-year-old women who began uh, forming groups to help people working with their grief, and they have a 10-point uh, sort of steps to working with it, which I thought I'd share just because I think it's a very interesting um, perspective. So 10 steps to resilience and empowerment in the era of climate crisis. So the first two are systemic. We have to accept the severity of the problem. That's what I've spoken about before, about recognizing what's happening. We have to acknowledge our part, both being part of the problem and also being part of the solution. You know, we're all implicit in what we do, what we act, what we buy, what we, you know, cars we drive, etc. And we can also be part of the, the change. And the next two steps are to sit with uncertainty. And again, this is where our practice comes in because when you sit in meditation, it's always uncertain. You never know what's going to arise. Joy, boredom, fear, bliss, peace, rage, you know, your neighbor's breath, someone fidgeting, falling asleep, getting enlightened, you know, you never know. Sitting with uncertainty. And then also accepting our and others' mortality. 
that this is part of the life cycle. And then they say, do the inner work, whatever's work, whatever's being worked in you around the crisis, and watch your negative bias, watch your catastrophizing mind, right? Watch how our perception distorts our reality. And then there's um, a couple of steps on self-care. And one is basically taking care of yourself. Pace yourself, nourish yourself, take breaks. I've worked with a lot of activists over the years and and mostly burnt out activists because by the time they get to me on a retreat or in nature, they're pretty fried. And um, their work is, and their bodies and their families are suffering because of not taking care, of not nourishing themselves, of not going out onto the land, of not doing the things that help for the long haul. And another step is practicing gratitude, appreciating what is here, appreciating the beauty that is here. And then the last two around action, showing up, like doing your part. And investing in mean, into meaningful efforts, investing time, money, resources, energy, creativity. So I really like that ten steps to resilience. So, and then the fifth uh, R is to reimagine possibility and the human potential to act. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I can feel a little bleak about humanity when I see and hear and read what we're doing and the impact of our lifestyle on the world, I don't feel so good about Homo sapiens. You know, we've really, you know, as a species, as species do when they become dominant, is they overly dominate and uh, to the detriment of every other species, which is to some degree happening. I think I read some some statistic that uh, 60% of animals... Uh, 60% of 60% of mammals are livestock on the earth. 60% of all mammals on the earth are livestock. 36% are human beings. That leaves 4% wild mammals. Right? That's what happens when a species dominates an ecosystem. It dominates an ecosystem to the detriment of everything else. Same with birds. 60% of all birds are poultry. Chicken and turkeys. So reimagining possibility and the human potential to act. So when I was teaching an Earth Day some years ago here, I was teaching, Paul Hawken was one of the speakers, and um, he was writing a book about carbon, about this amazing molecule called carbon. It's the most creative, adaptive molecule in the universe that's also a significant feature of the climate crisis. And um, he said, said, so reimagining human potential, also reimagining carbon. He said the size of, if you compressed all the carbon molecules in the earth, in the atmosphere, you, they, would, they would fit into San Geronimo Valley, which is this valley. If you put it in a ball, somehow. I can't quite get my head around that, but anyhow. So, but he was, he was, he said that the, 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 prob, the main problem that we're facing as a species is we we, we, we can't imagine the unimaginable. As in, we can't imagine, we're, we're suffering from a lack of imagination around dealing with the, with the crisis and seeing some, posit, some, some way forward. And I thought that was a very interesting thing to point to uh, of, of lacking a certain imagination of what's possible. And then he listed a whole things that we know about from um, how we, uh, you know, the treaty that was signed to uh, eliminate CFCs that were creating this massive tens of thousands of square mile hole in the ozone layer that now is happily reducing because of the effectiveness of that treaty that 192 countries came together and signed this never before 
um, uh, created uh, global understanding. You know, in the same way that it's hard to imagine as a species, especially in this rise of authoritarianism, tribalism, not in my backyard, and erecting stronger uh, border boundaries, it's hard to imagine we wake up as a species to, to actually really to have a global consciousness where we really care for not just those nearest and dearest, or not just our country, but actually for all species and for all peoples. That that's possible. That we may wake up as a species to really live like that. And it's, from this point in history, it seems like a huge stretch. But so did the, the, the coming down of the Berlin Wall, or the ending of slavery, or the ending of apartheid, or the, or the, the institutional uh, discrimination against the LGBTQ community that suddenly massively overturned in, in a few years recently. So reimagining the possibility of human potential to act. And the endangered species legislation, a remarkable landmark piece of legislation that's you know, currently under threat. And there's a huge amount of species brought back from the, I think it was something like 250 were in the brink of extinction. American crocodile, whooping crane, gray wolf, bald eagle, humpback whale, California condor, peregrine falcon. I saw one last week. Blue whale, bighorn sheep, Florida manatee, gray whale, grizzly bear. So there's, it's possible we come together and do amazing things. We also do terrible things, but we also do amazing things. Possible. And just the seeing what's happening with the youth rising with Greta Thunberg and her you know her expressing that potency and power that fierceness of this younger generation that's saying wake up shame on you wake up stop telling us nice things about what you think you're going to do actually do them wake up why are you leaving it for us to clear up your mess that's very important. Six and a half million people, or however many millions there were marching, very inspiring. And one of the biggest global rallying of, of energy in support of demanding that government, society, corporations radically shift their behavior. And I was in England at some at some periods during the Extinction Rebellion uh, protests in, in London and elsewhere, and it was amazing to see it was a very small group of people completely transform the conversation about climate crisis in England and Britain, and you know, government took on the, the declaring climate emergency and really beginning to take a little more seriously. Uh, the climate crisis. Of course, we all know that governments are really good at saying the right things and not actually following through. And so there's now, in fact, as I was mentioning, my friends probably got arrested today trying to uh, actually have the UK government and and later this month it will be protests here in the US trying to actually make people, you know, force action rather than just have nice polemic So, or just seeing the shift to people choosing a plant-based diet. It's a huge movement to, away from the meat industry, uh, the dairy industry, and uh, the overfishing, and people choosing consciously. I, th- um, I think, I, forget, I've, I sometimes can't remember the data, but um, I think in England, there's a huge percentage of young people becoming vegetarian, becoming vegan, and just waking up to the impact, seeing what we can do. So the sixth step is re re-inspiring ourselves to act. And so looking at how ways that we can engage, ways that we can step up, ways that we can transform. 
mostly the change we need is needs to be happening at a societal level with um, government intervention, with corporations shifting their practices, with keeping fossil fuels in the ground, which mostly will have to be uh, mandated. Um, but there's also things we can do, and just to look at what our role, contribution, how does our practice, how does that manifest in our day-to-day living? You know, what do you choose to eat every day? Does your is it the kind of diet that you will eat, the food that you eat? Does that actually is that life sustaining, or is it actually, you know, contributing to business as usual, which is causing all the problems that we know? Or how do you vote, and how do you support the get out the vote campaigns? You know, the most significant thing we can do, or one of the most significant things, is elect people who aren't in denial about the climate crisis. 98, 99% of science is that that which is not funded by the fossil fuel industry is pretty clear that we're in a climate crisis. Talking to people, one of the most effective things we can do is talk to people, especially your family, having those uncomfortable conversations about beliefs and views and trying to find ways to connect with people about what they care about, like children and grandchildren and animals or fishing or whatever it is they care about. So I've always appreciated Joanna Macy's framework for understanding this time where she calls it the great turning. There's three ways we can engage in the great turning. One is holding actions, where we're holding back the stem of the tide of destruction, which a lot of environmental organizations are doing to stem the tide of drilling or um, environmental degradation here, there, and everywhere through injunctions and lawsuits and whatnot in Washington, elsewhere. But most of us aren't going to be doing those kind of frontline actions demonstrating putting lying down in front of bulldozers. My friend did this wonderful action. He, he, so he had a suit, one of these special suits that you cover yourself in glue and then you find, you know, I think they were gluing themselves to the front of the British, the BBC, and uh, he had to get to a line of police. So he's next to a rugby player, so he was able to kind of get to the line of police and then glue himself <laughs> at the doors. That's a picture of him with his hand on the BBC's front door. <laughs> Stark. <laughs> you know, so sometimes that, that's a holding action, right? Trying to stem, like, the f- slow down the craziness, get people's attention, wake up. Of course, they're so busy with the Brexit madness that they're not paying attention. And the second uh, facet of the Great Turning is alternative structures. Alternative structures to the current paradigm that we have that's you know, part of a consumer, materialist, and somewhat extractive and destructive economy. And so organic farming would be an example of that. Sustainable housing, cooperative projects. And the third is transformation of consciousness, shifting our our consciousness, which is what we're doing here, through mindfulness, through awareness, through understanding our deep interconnection with life, that we're basically harming ourselves through our actions. We're harming ourselves through our culture and lifestyle. So we're just coming off a retreat in the wilderness last week. One of the participants lives up in Mammoth, and what she's chosen, she's worked for the Park Service all life, but now she's on the school board, she's on the city board, she's on, you know, she's run various local offices as her way to to make the the area that she lives more sustainable, more ecologically sensitive. And all looking at what we do with our money and our investments. I'm being really inspired by the divestment campaign, $24 trillion of funds that were going into the fossil fuel industry being taken out and moved somewhere else. 
Right? That gets people's attention. That gets fossil fuel companies' attention when you take a lot of money out of their holdings. So, and then lastly, uh, resilience. You know that I'm I'm very aware that this what's unusual about this particular crisis that we're in is it's a long-term crisis. Generally, we we use the word crisis for a short-term, acute, you know, phenomena. But this crisis, this climate disruption, is we we're we're entering into a long phase and nobody knows how long, of disruption. And so it's essential that we stay resilient. It's essential we stay resilient in our lives anyway to deal with stress, to deal with burnout, so we can stay nourished, support our well-being. But also so we can stay responsive. If you're burned out and fried, it's hard to act, it's hard to engage. So resilience is knowing what sustains you, what nourishes you, right? what gladdens your heart. Right? This is a little bit of a depressing talk. You look a little not very happy tonight. You know, I'm sorry. This, um, the, this, this, some of these talks are like they were the, the deliverer of bad news. I mean, it's not news you don't know about, but it's like. But I think it's important that we talk about this. This is hard to talk about. It's hard to listen. I'd rather be giving a different Dharma talk in a way. You'd probably rather hearing a different Dharma talk, but here you are, you're stuck. Maybe. I mean, I'm, I can't know what you want, what you can, you know. But um, given the stresses, our personal work stress, family stress, ecological stress, life stress, racial stress, social stress, how do we nourish ourselves? How do we take care of ourselves? How, what brings joy? What brings gladness? What brings delight? What brings laughter? Right, so for me, that's mostly being outside, getting away from my screen, being in nature, being with friends, being in community, practicing, taking care of my body, taking care of my mind. Right, those things that we do, the life-enhancing Staying engaged, staying connected. I find that whenever I'm engaged in some kind of action in the, in these times, it's just it's, there's ins- I, mean, I get inspired by other people. It's nourishing. It's uplifting. It's more fun. It's more engaging. And then a key point for resilience is is not being attached to the, the result of any particular action. So we may do tremendous good work and it fail, or not get the desired outcome. But, just, you know, but if we cannot be so gripped by demanding that we know or expect how things are going to be, there's a little more fluidity. So I'll close with a story. I was uh, talking to a friend recently about my my my. Uh, My um, being consumed by by what's happening ecologically, and um, you know, just reflecting on my own participation and and how to engage in this this area. And he said, "Well, you know, I mean, it's not really going to change until we really see that we're not separate." when we get that what we're doing, the harm that we're doing is we're just harming ourselves because we are the earth, we are species, we are each other. And until we get this fundamental understanding that we're not separate, that we're connected, that we're deeply interconnected, deeply affecting each other, that we won't really wake up and change. So this story is um, from John Seed, who is a, a pastor, a teacher in 
an activist in New South Wales in Australia. And this was many years ago, I think probably now at least 30, 40 years ago. And um, he was, uh, his friends were involved in uh, this, this uh, anti-logging uh, action happening. They were, the loggers were threatening to cut down this old growth forest near his house. And um, his friends called him and said, Look, please come, we need people to, to stand in front of the logging trucks and the bulldozers because we're filing a lawsuit in court, but it hasn't come through yet. We don't have an injunction yet, so we're trying to do whatever we can to slow them down. And he said, okay, I'll go along. And so he went along and he ends up finding himself in front of this, this huge line of bulldozers and trucks and diggers and and he says, and he had, a, he had a profound realization. He said, standing facing the bulldozers, whoever I had been was now subsumed into a vaster and truer identity. I realized it wasn't me defending the rainforest, but the rainforest were defending themselves through me. I realized that I'd been subsumed into a vaster and truer identity that it wasn't me defending the rainforest, but the rainforest defending themselves through me. Right? That's what happens when we understand interconnectedness, when we understand that our actions you know, are much bigger than ourselves. When we subsume ourselves into, into really understanding what Ani Ness called the ecological self, then our actions, we're really just, it's the, the ecological, it's, we're a piece of this vast ecological self called Earth that's taking care of itself, that's protecting itself, that's healing itself, that's loving itself. Right? And so this, this movement has to ultimately come from love, come from inspiration, come from care. All right, well that's all I had to say tonight. So thank you for your attention. And I wish you go and enjoy this beautiful night. And I wish you much beautiful time on the earth, in the forests, in the oceans around here, in the trees. And may that kindle your love and your passion to engage. Okay, thank you. May your hearts break open. Stay open. Thank you. I'll I'll stay behind if anybody has any questions or anything. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.